8.03. Israeli historian Yuval Harari has said the COVID-19 pandemic should be fought not by instituting totalitarian surveillance, but by empowering citizens, as he warned in a contribution to the Financial Times against the dangers of emergency government measures to track and monitor coronavirus carriers. Well, what if such temporary tools become the new norm, opening doors for more invasive surveillance? To find out more, we welcome on the line Albert Fox Khan, founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what kind of digital surveillance measures have actually been adopted by governments around the world due to COVID-19? Because I suspect some of this technology has already been enforced and is just being diverted to the coronavirus effort. Yeah, with the COVID-19 response, we're not seeing new technology so much as a broader deployment of existing tracking tools. You know, we've seen uh, the use of cell phone uh, location data from cell towers and GPS tracking. We've seen uh, Singapore use TraceTogether, um, a tool that uses Bluetooth signals to trace contacts. You know, uh, Italian authorities, Austrian authorities, Israeli authorities, they've all had different tools that they've rolled out, all with slightly different privacy implications. But the common theme here is that, you know, governments are viewing this as a chance to respond with much more invasive tracking than historically has been uh, permitted. There, there is a movement in certain countries to make this voluntary and to encourage people to report their own symptoms, to talk about where they're going, all sorts of self-reporting to help build a large data pool in the battle against COVID-19. Is, is the line between that and some of the less savoury aspects just the voluntary feature? Well, we have to be concerned about whether a lot of these tools are going to live up to the promise, you know, because we haven't had really a chance to test the efficacy of some of these programs, including the opt-in programs. It's easy to imagine a situation where people are opting into very intrusive data collection uh, with a promise that will help them better understand their risk of COVID-19, but that the software doesn't really deliver on that promise. But I I generally find that opt-in solutions are less troubling than uh, the broad-based use of, you know, warrantless uh, surveillance, which just grabs everyone's data without permission and without any judicial oversight. It's it's almost a bit like an ankle tag, though, uh, carrying a phone around with you during these times, especially if you've been ordered to self-quarantine. The... the, uh, the floor, of course, though, is that you might not take your phone with you and, and there's still um, quite a lot of freedom there. It, it seems a halfway house between a lockdown and freedom, which could be fairly vulnerable. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we should be handling people who, who really should be staying indoors, especially if they've been exposed to the virus and are waiting to see if they're going to be infected? Well, we know that the most powerful tool we have to prevent the spread of this virus is voluntary social distancing. There is no surveillance tool that's going to be as effective as broad-based engagement in, you know, these sorts of measures to ensure that we're not uh, putting our loved ones at risk. I I am quite concerned that when you start going down the road of enforcing that sort of social distancing through uh, cell phone location tracking, that you create a lot of unintended consequences. Here in the United States, for example, we're constantly concerned about how the uh, tracking we see for COVID-19 might impact uh, immigration enforcement, law enforcement. 
and all these other sorts of government programs. And to the extent that the government is using these tools uh, to track individuals without their consent, and to the extent they're relying on cell phone data and collecting it and retaining it in ways that can be used by other government agencies, it creates a lot of risks that people won't get tested, won't get treated, will go into the shadows because they risk that they worry that they run a risk that they may be targeted for deportation if they try to get uh, medical treatment. And so these are some of the concerns that come up when you're talking about using cell phone location data. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, despite those concerns, though, if you know for sure that someone has had that contact with someone who's infected and perhaps fairly close contact through the tracing and testing system that we have that's seemed to work quite well here in South Korea and containing the outbreak, it would be almost negligent to ignore that information wouldn't it? And, to, and, and to do something to make sure people don't move around. Those particular well, I, I people. Think, and I completely agree. I, I think that we need to respond when individuals are at heightened risk of being infected, but I think that doesn't necessarily translate to surveillance. You know, part of what has really stymied our efforts here in the United States is a lack of access to testing that made it much harder to identify who was a carrier, who was at risk, and to do any meaningful contact tracing. And so I think that while surveillance could play a role potentially in some circumstances in augmenting that response, it's really just a small part of an overall um, public health monitoring apparatus. And without the testing and without treatment and without public health responses, it really won't do much. So aside from, I guess, things like CCTV and uh, credit card payments and that sort of thing, from a mobile phone point of view, what happens if you switch your location data off, for example? How do they trace you? Well, there are a variety of ways that our phones can be turned into location beacons, and really they are one of the most effective tools of mass surveillance that's ever been uh, developed. Uh, your location can be identified using Bluetooth, using Wi-Fi connectivity. Even if you're not connecting to a Wi-Fi network, simply having your Wi-Fi turned on could be enough to track your location. There are so many apps that we all have on our phones that we download for free, but part of the price that's hidden for those apps is that they're constantly uploading our data so it can be monetized and sold to advertisers. But now that same location data is being used by governments. And, and the fear is here that s certain countries might already be looking to go much, much further. For example, face recognition technology. Uh, I know China and Russia have been much maligned in, in recent months for some of the uh, technological development they've been pushing for in this regard. Are, are you very worried that under the guise of COVID-19, we, we could end up with more and more governments taking opportunities which will then not be rolled back? A hundred percent. You know, the the historical pattern here is clear that in times of crisis, we dramatically expand the power of the state to surveil and to uh, use policing powers. And then when that crisis subsides, those powers aren't rolled back. You know, here in the U.S., uh, after 9-11, we created the U.S. Patriot Act that gave the government sweeping surveillance powers that were supposed to expire in 2004. But then they were extended and extended again. And 
right now our lawmakers are deciding whether or not to extend those powers once again towards 2024. So we can't assume that any uh, government surveillance that's enacted for the purpose of fighting COVID-19 will remain limited to COVID-19. And I'm extraordinarily concerned that, you know, that the steps we take in the coming months will help define the role of our governments for decades to come. We reported recently on the show, it's worth repeating on a political front, that Hungarian leader Viktor Orban is now ruling by decree indefinitely due to this coronavirus situation. So it's not just about surveillance, it's it's about how far we're willing to compromise even our very democracies and political systems. But coming back to you on the surveillance front, um, Albert Fox Khan, are there any countries in particular that you'd like to highlight? Um, because if you look at the news everywhere from Australia to Mexico has been has been attracting attention for its questionable technology exploitation. For example, in Australia, the health minister outing a doctor who allegedly treated patients while experiencing symptoms. Uh, in Mexico, Uber suspending accounts of hundreds of riders after a rider tested positive. Yeah, I mean, we've seen abuses all over the place. I mean, we, you know, Russia's use of facial recognition is highly problematic because it that tool can then be used to monitor uh, nearly anyone. Here in the U.S., we've seen uh, our New York City's Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio providing identifying information on some of the early patients, and then that uh, patient's information was uh, published by the New York Post. We, you know, in China, we've seen the broad-based deployment of uh, color-coded uh, ranking systems that decide whether or not someone should be able to leave their house and use transit. But a lot of people are saying that these systems are getting it wrong, that they're falsely claiming that an individual is at risk of being infected with COVID-19, and there's no way to appeal it. There's no way to say, hey, I, I, I'm actually okay, I'm actually healthy. Um, And so these are the sorts of concerns that come up whenever you centralize power. And, you know, in New York, we we actually did something similar to what happened in Hungary. Obviously, we have uh, far less of a history of uh, autocratic rule than what we've seen there. But, you know, New York state legislature passed a law that said our governor, Andrew Cuomo, could enact any law by executive order that was needed to respond to uh, a public health emergency without any limitation. I mean, of course, the very idea of the dictatorship in in ancient Rome was supposedly a a short-term fix to extreme circumstances, which would then be reversed. (laughs) And um, history tells us that not everyone enjoys giving that up um, once the crisis is apparently over. But we um, we also have potential exceptions that people might be more willing to bend on. Um, for example, the Shinchanji religious sect here that was vilified and was accused of being overly secretive and was at the heart of the uh, the epidemic early on here in, in South Korea. If there had been more of an ability to expose what they were doing to track them, perhaps it would have helped. Would that have been justified? 
I think that starts to get into this sort of extreme cases where it is justified to use compulsory surveillance tools because you had an organization where, uh, based on my understanding from the public reporting, that they were systematically refusing to comply with public health instructions to provide information that would mm. be helpful on contact tracing, that they were effectively trying to thwart some of the you know, public health measures. I think in those sorts of extreme cases where you can cannot rely upon voluntary compliance, There, you start to actually see some uh, justifications for expanded measures. But what worries me most is that is an extraordinary exception. It's not the norm. And instead, we, we see governments uh, using surveillance tools that are almost based on the premise that these sorts of extraordinary measures are necessary, when really, for the vast majority of people, they're not. Yeah. And a solution, I guess, from a local perspective has been from the Korea Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announcing data obtained from COVID-19 patients' phones will be shared in a way that protects privacy by allowing their data system to only request information on patients when information is necessary, police approvals required to obtain geolocation info. They are trying, perhaps not trying hard enough, to be cautious about giving too much identifying information, although people are putting the dots together themselves online. How satisfactory or otherwise is this solution, That, as far as you can tell? You know, I, I want to recognize the fact that they have tried to create some safeguards, but I'm quite concerned by the very premise of the model they've created because geolocation data is uniquely difficult to anonymize. Simply getting a few uh, data points on a single individual can be enough to reconstruct their identity, even if you're trying to remove every other identifying feature because the places we go are you know, intimately connected with who we are. And yeah. so I think that sort of model is almost doomed to fail. Uh, and that's why I think it should be reserved for extraordinary cases where voluntary compliance is insufficient, because we are going to see a lot of people having intimate elements of their life revealed. And simply the threat of that is going to chill everything from religious expression to political engagement and, and every other aspect of our lives. Yeah, I mean, just as an aside here, I think particularly when they've been giving out the nationality of of certain foreigners in very specific districts in Seoul, it really does narrow the pool as well. Uh, And and let's say, for example, in the recent case where they said a a Polish national, I mean, you might be told that's in your neighborhood and you might know, say, three Polish people there. Um, You might start discriminating against one of the people that wasn't uh, infected. And frankly... Um, it's problematic uh, from that case alone. Albert Fox Kahn, founder and executive director, Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, thank you very much for joining us and raising these concerns. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.